Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of July 16th, 2018. On this week's show, Roger Bennett of Men and Blazers will join us to talk about France's World Cup triumph and our lasting memories of the tournament in Russia. Caitlin Thompson of Racket Magazine will also be here to discuss Serena Williams's near triumph at Wimbledon and whether we should impose a fifth set tiebreak to save the men of tennis. And Sports Illustrated's Emma Bacheleri will chat with us about the Baltimore Orioles and the Kansas City Royals in their quest for a perverse kind of immortality, as both are among the worst baseball teams of modern times. Stefan Fatsis remains in Iceland, although he assures me that he is going to come back to us someday soon. Joining me this week from Slate's New York studio is my colleague Henry Grabar, who writes about business and urban planning and sometimes about sports. He also shares a last name with Croatian President Kolinda Grabar Katarovic, but was not displeased with the outcome of Sunday's World Cup final because he is a citizen of the great nation of France. Allez, Henry. Allez, Libra, Josh. I'm just really pleased for you. I, I don't know if I've ever personally had a podcaster-to-podcaster relationship with someone who's a citizen of a country that's won a men's World Cup. I don't know how that feels. This is the first time that I have uh, experienced that phenomenon as well. Personally, I do not remember France's triumph in the 1998 World Cup. So, yeah, it's been a joy. I, As you know, I wrote a piece for Slate over the weekend about some of the French team, the neighborhoods they come from outside of Paris, which is a place that I've done reporting for Slate. And, and then yesterday, when they won the game, all my sort of opinions about what it meant for France and the social consequences, it's kind of just faded away in this moment of sheer joy. And I uh, happened to be surrounded by uh, French supporters because it was the day after Bastille Day. So, Brooklyn was having a Bastille Day party, um, and it was just a, a really raucous, joyous scene. That's awesome. Um, let's talk about the game. Uh, on Sunday in Moscow, the French men's national soccer team became, at the average age of 25 years and 10 months, the second youngest group of all time behind only Brazil in 1970 to win the World Cup. France, which beat Croatia 4-2, to two, was also the first team since Brazil in 1970 to score four goals in the final. And 19-year-old Kylian Mbappe, who scored the fourth of those four goals, became the second teenager ever to score in the World Cup final, joining Brazil's Pelé, who did so as a 17-year-old in 1958. The takeaway here is that Brazil has done really good things at the World Cup over the years. It's a new fact for you. And also that this France team is good and Mbappe is very good. And they could both be extraordinary for quite a long time. 
Joining us now to discuss is Roger Bennett of Men and Blazers. He's the co-author with Michael Davies of the best-selling encyclopedia Blazer Tanica and the host of the 12-part podcast series American Fiasco, the true story of how not to win the World Cup. Roger, thanks for being here. Josh, what do you need me for? Your introduction pretty well summed up the whole World Cup <laughs> and the future of world soccer. Well, let me mention a couple other things for you, Roger. There's an own goal. There's a penalty awarded via video review, a howler by French goalkeeper Hugo Uris, wonder goals from Ivan Perisic and Mbappe and Paul Pogba. There's an on-field protest by members of the Russian collective Pussy Riot. There's an iconic victory pose by Emmanuel Macron. This was the first World Cup final to feature all of these things since Brazil in 1970. Now, what what stood out for you uh, from the game, Roger? Yeah, all of it. I'll just say yes to everything. You're so good <laughs> at this, Josh. You've summed it all up. I mean, what was the highlight of the World Cup final for me, an Englishman? Who like I'm American now, let's be honest. But like the last vestiges of my Englishness still cling on to me, and that is a inability to enjoy French happiness and definitely French <laughs> glory. Yeah. Um, by the way, I, th- I think the final was befitting of the World Cup, which was the greatest I've ever seen. I thought we're going to credit Croatia. Um, I mean, just a remarkable footballing story. This midfield combo of who received rightfully the Player of the Tournament alongside Rakitic of Barcelona. The two of them were like, it was like watching Simon and Garfunkel in Happy Days, maybe live at Central Park (laughs) as they played in harmony in that midfield. And what I admired about them was just their tenacity, their courage. You know, many teams, World Cup finals are normally crap. There's just normally not a lot of excitement. And I was really amazed watching this Croatian team never wilt in the the kind of eye of the the big occasion they kept coming even when they were dropped they kept coming back and i really loved the sense of theater that they brought to the occasion um ultimately though for me you know the right team won but you know who did win the world cup it was vladimir putin i have to say having been in moscow for a chunk of uh, of the world cup and wandering around, they gussied up Moscow, the whole city, which is a beautiful city. It's a remarkable city, a city steeped in history. It was so different to any Moscow I'd ever been there. The whole city was like the High Line in New York, in in uh, downtown New York. It had been gussied up, made perfect. Uh, the homeless people, I, got, I hope they're okay. I have no idea where they were moved to. The elderly were nowhere to be seen. It was all beautiful people, beautiful buildings. And the aim of this World Cup was, unlike the 1980 uh, um, Olympics, which was meant to be a coil fist to show Russian power, this World Cup was carefully calibrated to normalize Russia uh, in the eyes of the world. Vladimir Putin wanted everyone to tweet out, Russia was amazing, it wasn't how we imagined. But it was almost a Truman Show, pitch-perfect place to host a football tournament. So ultimately, the real winner uh, was Vladimir Putin. Well... On the Arc uh, de Triomphe after the final on Sunday, we did not see Putin's face projected. It was Mbappe, Henry, um, and that was an echo of Zinedine Zidane's face being projected on the Arc de Triomphe uh, 20 years ago when France won the World Cup for the first time. It's kind of a beautiful parallelism there. And there's a lot of talk as the tournament went on about this, as the 1998 team was, being a kind of team of immigrants and this tournament was, you know, viewed that way by people around the world and people in France. What do you think the significance of the victory was, Henry? 
Well, I think that actually the, the immigrant narrative seems to be more popular here. I think that people uh, want to project the sense of this French team as some sort of bulwark against global xenophobia. And in France, I mean, let's, you know, it's, it's, I have to point out just to start that most of the players on the team are children of immigrants. Many of them grew up, I think eight of the 23 grew up right outside Paris. So they're Parisians. Uh, and it's true that the team represents a sort of racial and uh, ethnic diversity that now characterizes the area around Paris. But I think the French have been a little wary to project the kind of symbolism that accompanied the 1998 victory, which was the famous uh, Black Blanc Beurre team, the Black White Arab team led by Zidane, if only because the intervening years haven't really borne out that vision of France as a sort of totally harmonious and multicultural place. And I think after the terrorist attacks of uh, 2015 and 2016, Everyone was quite on guard about all these people in the street. I mean, the country's been in a state of emergency for more than a year, which just ended recently. That said, uh, I think it's hard to resist the feelings, the uplifting feelings that that did accompany this victory. Um, I was reading some of the interviews in Le Monde today. Several people who are out in the streets taking part in these sort of festivities did talk about terrorism, and they talked about how they didn't think that this kind of thing would be possible again, that there could be this kind of public outpouring of joy. And I think it was really a, a cathartic moment for them. And Mbappe, actually, several weeks before the tournament began, gave this interview to a French documentary crew in which he talks about the World Cup and he talks about what it would mean to win the World Cup, what it would mean for France, what it would mean for the kids in the banlieue where he grew up in Bondy. And it's quite moving to watch that in retrospect now that his face, as you say, has been projected and he's become the sort of symbol of this this young French team and this playing in harmony and, and winning in style, even if the final itself wasn't there. The this conversation is bouncing back and forth between dystopia and utopia, Roger, sort of sort of like uh, like a soccer game. Yeah, um, you know, 16 of the 23 players on France's team were uh, from families who were recent immigrants to the country. There's seven Muslims. Um, I think you're totally right, Henry, that there is a resistance to repeat the mistake, the kind of joyous proclamations about the team and the, and the projecting them to be the future of France at this genuinely frightening geopolitical time of uncertainty. But it was interesting to see all of the footballers have to become almost ambassadors in the weight when they were all asked questions about it. Man of the match, Anton Griezmann, spoke immediately after the final whistle. He said, that's the France we love. That's it. Uh, there are different origins, but we're all united. I'm fascinated also uh, by what this means from a footballing perspective about this French win. You, you mentioned that eight of the team come from the suburbs of of Paris. And when we say suburbs, I don't mean like Westchester in New York. I mean, these are fairly, uh, Pogba has talked about coming from a ghetto. Um, and from a footballing perspective, that concentration in, in football, we always move immediately towards like, what can we learn? What do we need to do? How do we become more like the Spanish? Everyone wanted to know in 2010, in 2014, everyone's like, what can we learn about Germany? And how can we become more like the Germans? Both of those teams crashed out, the Spanish, in 2014 in the opening round. And then Germany this year, one of the only joys I really had was watching Germany. <laughs> it was like watching Darth Vader uh, walk around and trip over his own shoelaces. It was hilarious. But everyone is now saying, what do we learn about French football that we can all kind of improve ourselves from? 
And there is a scouting system that they have in place, which has always been an American deep weakness. Our scouting mechanism within youth soccer in America is one of the weakest points in our footballing strategy. The scouting in and around Paris is, is probably unparalleled anywhere else in the world right now. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and one of the things that stands out about this team, again, is the youth. One of my favorite features of the sort of post-game ceremony was tuning into the Instagram story of um, Kimpembe, who's one of the French defenders. And he basically was broadcasting live to his million plus followers sort of every moment <laughs> from, I guess, from the moment he, he got his cell phone back in the locker room after the match, which included this great moment where they're all on the uh, team bus heading back. And I think there there's a small generational divide on the French team from from what I've read which features basically when they, the team relaxes, basically the entire team plays video games, except for uh, Hugo Lloris and Olivier Giroud, who are the sort of over 30 contingent. And they play <laughs> pétanque, which I thought was <laughs> kind of a just a very charming, very French thing. But anyway, the rest of these kids are playing video games and putting out Instagram stories. And they're coming back on the bus from the stadium in Moscow. And the whole bus is singing what sounded to me at first like that a French pop song, uh, Oh Champs Elysees, you know that song. Uh, except they changed the words and instead the chorus was Ngolo Conte. Which I assume is a, is a, a chant that the French supporters do, but to see all the players on the bus. I think that's actually a chant that, Ro- a chant that Roger does during the game. <laughs> For your listeners, many of whom will know Ngolo Conte well, but some of them will not. And Kante is one of the most remarkable athletes I've ever witnessed. He's around five foot six, possibly smaller. And he is a right elite bloomer in his career um, who arrived at Leicester City in the Premier League, an unheralded team, just a, a, almost like the Milwaukee Brewers of English sports. And immediately in his arrival, turned them into a Cinderella uh, Premier League winning team. Um, he was one of the key cogs in a in a remarkable fairy tale season, uh, and then he moved to Chelsea Football Club, and immediately they became uh, Premier League winners. Now with France, he's become a World Cup winner, and it's fascinating to watch him. He plays in the midfield; he's tiny, uh, but he's like a hard hitting safety. Uh, he hits everything. He reads the game so unbelievably well. I posted on my Twitter feed a breakdown of the game that I think French television did uh, the semi final. And just watching how he anticipates where the ball is going to go, um, how he moves to it so quickly, just an, an intellect. It's an amazing video. Intellect. Yeah, we'll link to it on our show page. There was something remarkable about watching this French team and sort of feeling like, you know, as Eric Betts wrote on Slate, that they were playing with a parking brake on and they were still zooming past everyone. And you can look at that both ways, I think, as you argued. Roger, just sort of the balance that they had on on the field, the realization of both how to play, you know, well as a team and also have these moments of transcendence. That's what's required to win a World Cup. But for me, and and maybe this is just going to keep me watching over the years, it just felt like there was a little something more that we didn't quite get to see from our World Cup winners in, in 2018. And, and when you say um, that it was the greatest World Cup you've ever seen, Roger, it it wasn't quite that for me, just because I felt like I wanted to see a little a little bit more. I want to make it clear. 
I mean, this final, yes, there was a, a, a the world a, a, the World Cup's first ever own goal in a final. Yes, there was a slightly dodgy penalty given by the video review system, which was arguably incredibly unkind to Croatia. There was a deflected goal. But I want to make it clear, France deserved this World Cup victory. I mean, they, they were an astonishing collective. In 2014, they kind of lost the swagger of the World Cup. You know, players make so much bloody money. They have so many Lamborghinis at this point. It seemed in 2014 that it didn't really matter whether they had a good World Cup or not. It really wasn't going to change their lives. This World Cup was the opposite of that. It really was a, a joy to watch elite athletes play for the simple honour again uh, of making their nation proud and just uh, dazzling the world. But the real storyline was that individual stars, the overhyped kind of the Neymar, uh, Ronaldo, uh, Messi, even Mo Salah, all of them kind of squibbed out early. And this was a World Cup in which true collectives excelled. And what I adored about this French team, there are, there are incredible French stars. You mentioned Mbappe, Pogba, Griezmann. Can, I could go on. They have a galaxy of stars, but each of them subsumed their egos and played as a true collective, understanding their roles. And I will say, ultimately, the subsuming of star egos and welding a true collective, that's why this French team truly deserved to win their second World Cup. Obviously, the whole country was behind this. You had TV commentators, uh, normally so sort of stiff and serious, and a nation that's not typically considered uh, football mad. We're referring to the team as as us or as we you had during the, the semifinal, they haven't released statistics for the final, but during the semifinal, apparently the equivalent of an entire city of Lyon worth of power was just not used because so many people were in the same places watching the game. Everyone's sort of gathering in the same places, and I'm sure that will <laughs> be the same for the final as well. But then in the interviews, what stands out is the degree to which young people were out in the streets. France is a fairly young country by uh, the standards of Western Europe, and 20 years is a long time. And for French people under 30, the 98 Cup is, if it's a memory at all, it's a very distant memory and uh, not one that they got to take part of uh, or claim for themselves. So I think there's reason to be skeptical about what a World Cup can do for France narratively. And But, you know, we'll see as this sort of this sort of jubilation settles into that post final glow. Uh, if it does sort of, you know, give the you know, especially the Parisian region where some of these players are from, a new sense of, of, of themselves. There, there is a real sadness, I have to say, the second the final whistle goes of the final of a World Cup. You know, the World Cup is is not just a sporting event. It's like a, a world which is created with its own characters, its own storylines, its own magical narrative. And the whole world is engaged in that. And the second that final whistle goes, there is something truly dark uh, about it. it. It's as if the World Cup immediately goes into history. And emotionally, it does leave you flailing, a bit like a diver coming up and getting the bends, all that daily joy. We, we, we didn't just experience ourselves, but we reveled in along with the rest of the planet. Um, it just instantly evaporates, disintegrates. And I, I, I know there'll be a lot of slate listeners in their offices, in their cubicles, in their corner offices, wherever they are, just like, wow, what am I going to do? This afternoon, around two o'clock, to scratch that itch. Uh, kind of for 32 days, we've all been uh, following along with that World Cup telenovela. Probably a lot of your listeners are at a bit of a loss today. Roger, take care of yourself. I can tell 
that you're <laughs> you're at a little bit of loose ends, but we'll support we'll have to support each other. The qualifying yeah. cycle has begun. Um, and if people need something to keep them company, I would suggest that they check out the encyclopedia of Blazer Tanica. Oh. Maybe maybe listen to American Fiasco. We have we have ways. <laughs> we have ways to pass the time. Roger Bennett, thank you so much for uh, for coming on the show. Thanks, guys. Rock on. Before we get to our conversation on Wimbledon, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, I'm going to chat with Henry about his cycling advice series, The Spokesman, and whether it is really, truly okay to slap the hoods of cars, as Henry told me it was. I don't want to get beat up. If you want to hear that conversation, you should join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Ten months ago, during last year's U.S. Open, Serena Williams gave birth to her daughter, Olympia. In the aftermath of the delivery, she had blood clots in her lungs and a large hematoma in her abdomen, both of which could have killed her. In the six weeks after her emergency C-section, she didn't get out of bed. And so maybe it's not that big a deal that Williams didn't win her 24th major title on Saturday at the All England Club. Here's a little bit from her on-court interview with Sue Barker after falling in straight sets to Germany's Angelique Kerber in the Wimbledon final. There are mums everywhere that are saying, how has she done this? You are superhuman supermum. No, I'm just, I'm just me, and that's all I can be. But to all the moms out there, you know, I was playing free today, and I tried, but... Um... Joining us now in our New York studio to discuss Serena Williams and everything else that happened at Wimbledon is Caitlin Thompson. Caitlin is the co-founder of the print quarterly Racket Magazine and the co-host with Renee Stubbs of the Racket Magazine podcast. Caitlin, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. So tennis is a sport in which the term comeback is tossed around pretty lightly all four of the big four in men's tennis, including this year's uh, Wimbledon champ Novak Djokovic, have come back from relatively major injuries in the last couple of seasons. But what Serena has done and is continuing to do is obviously a very different kind of comeback. Caitlin, you were at Wimbledon this year. What was it like to see Serena advancing through the draw? And did you get the sense that you were seeing something that transcended her sport? Ooh, that's a great question framed extremely provocatively. It was great to be at Wimbledon. Obviously, the grounds were buzzing with Serena's return. I was there last year as well. And, you know, there really is nothing like having her in the draw lurking uh, this year, seated, but not seated very highly, sort of able to take out anybody who kind of came across her path like a buzzsaw, like we are used to seeing her do. So this year, as opposed to last, was a very definite change in the atmosphere, uh, just knowing that she was on the grounds practicing her her retinue, her folks, uh, you know, walking through Wimbledon Village at night. It was a sort of cool, buzzy thing. That said, 
she is not the first woman to both mount a comeback after childbirth, although granted she had a very, very difficult one. My mind goes to Kim Kleisters, the Belgian who won two Grand Slams after coming back to giving her birth to her child, Jada. Now, granted, Serena did it at a later age. She gave birth in her 30s, and Kim Kleisters was in her 20s. Um, but she actually wasn't the only mom returning in the draw. Victoria Azarenka from Belarus also had a kid within the last two years. Not to take a single thing away from Serena, her making the final was obviously spectacular, great for the game, and she had a pretty great um, run in the tournament. That said, you know, there are a few asterisks just for people who are sort of being persnickety, which obviously I am. Um, about moms coming back to the tour. When we were listening to that interview she gave uh, on the court after the game, uh, it sounded like she was feeling a tremendous amount of pressure to represent something. Was that your sense? Do you think it affected the way she played? Completely. I think she played very nervous. As a matter of fact, if you, like me, watched the HBO documentary series Being Serena, which, you know, we could sort of have an interesting conversation about on its own, you would see that her comeback was very fraught. She kind of came back prematurely over the winter. She played an exhibition in the Middle East against Yelena Ostapenko, who won the French Open last year, and it didn't go as planned. And she kind of made a couple of fits and starts coming back to the tour this spring, ultimately coming back at the French Open. And she admitted a little bit too early and then she pulled out with a pectoral injury. So I think there was a lot riding on this tournament for her, both in terms of her legacy, but also how she wants to be perceived on the court. You know, Serena, more than any other player on the women's tour, benefits tremendously from the sort of self-defeat a lot of opponents commit on themselves before they get onto the court just because she's known as being so fierce a competitor, especially when backed into a corner. And I think her not having had that advantage in this tournament, people thinking that they could beat her, um, you know, which ultimately happened in the finals, was something that she was missing. So yeah, there was some emotion in her voice in a really nice way, I thought was a really good sort of sign that she's taking this comeback very seriously, but also kind of playing for something more than herself, which is great to see. Yeah, and I think, Caitlin, like you mentioned, a bunch of examples of, you know, predecessors who have had kids and come back on the tour about, you know, we weren't having these conversations about motherhood sort of, you know, around, you know, Kim Kleisters or Victoria Azarenka in a mainstream way in the way that we are now. And it's, you know, ever since Serena and her sister Venus have been on tour, they've stood for something bigger. The fact that they were on the tour in the first place meant something and represented something. And so, you know, we have conversations now about whether um, the ranking system in tennis discourages women from having children because they're, you know, when they come back, you basically lose all of the ranking points that you had. There's a story in the New York Times about the like extremely fucked up fact that women champions names on the like Wimbledon rundown of of champions there's like listed by their husbands names and these are things that are kind of occasioned by serena williams's existence and the path that that she's gone down completely right i think the nice thing about serena the great thing about serena that's underappreciated and you could certainly include her sister venus who in her own right is a incredible champion of the game. Not only are they black, not only are they folks who did not go through the USTA player development factory, a lot of our champions have come out through sort of sanctioned country system. And that's true of many, many, many other countries, not just the US. Uh, the one in the US just happens to be big and incredibly well funded. These guys came from outside of that system altogether. They didn't play junior tournaments. Their dad was their coach. They were booed off the court at Indian Wells famously in what was unmistakably a horrific racial incident. And then, you know, Serena only making her return within the last 12 months. So like, 
Serena in particular is a symbol. She wears that weight admirably, not perhaps always with a choice. But I really, really applaud her for sort of not only not necessarily being the first mother to return, but certainly the first mother who decided to make a case out of maternity leave. And, you know, for me, that really echoes in a really sort of relevant way. The conversations that many of us, you know, women who are in the professional workforce or or have been sounding for years and years, which is, you know, you lose your promotion because you're pregnant. Too bad. Somebody else gets it. You don't have your ranking points held for you. Well, too bad. Um, What I would love to see, and this includes the men as well, is an encouraged sabbatical from the game, whether it's because of pregnancy or injury or something else. You know, this schedule is grueling. These guys play effectively 11 months out of the year. No other sport requires as much of its athletes and no other sport, I think, is as hard on its their bodies, given the variations in surfaces and the length of a lot of these matches. So for me, what I would love to see, because I think it would elicit better tennis when the tennis is played on the court, is folks being a lot more flexible in terms of how they're allowed to step away from the game and then come back fresher, better, more motivated than before. I wonder how much of that is about the rankings in particular. I mean, I know that Serena, I think, was going into Wimbledon, was world-ranked 181, which I think everybody knew was ridiculous. And then they went and gave her a special seating of 25, basically just saying, well, this doesn't make a lot of sense, but we also don't know quite how far you'll go. So what if we just put you here? I think actually what Wimbledon did was pretty good. Setting aside the argument about holding somebody's ranking, um, most people coming back are not a full you know, percentage of themselves. If you looked at Victoria Azarenka, my Racket Magazine co-host, Renee Stubbs, was calling the mixed doubles final yesterday afternoon and was asked by her co, you know, the person calling the match alongside her in the chair, you know, what percentage of Victoria Azarenka is back after having gone and have a child? And she said, you know, probably 65, 70 percent. So it is a little bit of a tough thing to say, OK, we know this person isn't full force. If you looked at the matches Serena played, even in Wimbledon in the first couple rounds, she didn't deserve to be seated in the top four. Certainly. Probably you could even make the argument 16. So I actually think Wimbledon did as good enough of a job as they possibly could while trying to be fair to everybody else. What actually really affected her draw more than anything else was not her seating, was, but, but the, was the fact that a number of higher ranked players in her quadrant didn't make it past the first couple rounds. So she had effectively a pretty easy route to the final, which I think was helpful in getting her there, obviously, but didn't serve her once she was there because she played a much, much higher level opponent in Angelique Kerber. And, you know, the results uh, were evident. I wasn't surprised by the final, not one bit. Per 538, this was her easiest run ever to a Grand Slam final. And it was, I think, Caitlin, the first ever time in the open era of uh, women's tennis that there were no top 10 players that made it to the quarterfinals of a Grand Slam. And yet in the final, you you're almost right. You're almost right. Almost. Can I correct you? Yeah, go for it. Angelique Kerber was technically ranked 10, but she was not seated in the top 10. Yeah, that's uh, fair play on your part. Um, <laughs> but in the final, you have these two great champions, obviously. And Kerber is someone who won two Grand Slams in 2016. She had the like very small C comeback of having kind of a down year in 2017. But she's somebody who clearly has the amazing ability and the potential to win more titles. The fact that everybody was bitching about the seeds falling missed the point because, yeah, we can say Serena's route to the final was relatively easy, which is technically true. But the fact is, and this is something that I absolutely love about the women's game at the moment, it's super, super, super deep. You know, yeah, we didn't have any 
top 10 seeds in the last couple of rounds. But you know what we had? A handful of Grand Slam champions, including Yelena Ostapenko, who I mentioned earlier, uh, who made a semi. So the fact that it ended up being Kerber, who's one of the few people who's ever beaten Serena in a Grand Slam, much less a Grand Slam final, which she did in Australia two years ago, as you noted, meant that the women's game ended on an incredibly high sort of scintillating note. Both of those semifinals were very, very well contested. And, you know, I think you at the start of the tournament would would have been forgiven if you were a little underwhelmed by the performance of some of the seeds. But yeah. if you really follow the women's game, and I encourage everyone to do it because the women's game at this moment is vastly more exciting, in my view, than the men, what you'll see is that pretty much anybody in the top 20 can win a slam. And that's not because of the lack of dominance. It's just because of the depth and the fact that all these women can bring it on any given day. So for the men, I want to go to Henry on this first, just because I want to get a sense from somebody who doesn't follow the sport religiously. Like, what do you make of the John Isner, Kevin Anderson, 26-24 in the fifth set and the semifinals, six hours and 36 minutes? Just like, what is your gut reaction to that result? And also just the notion that a tennis match can go on that long. Well, so I'm so out of touch with the conventional wisdom in tennis that I remember sending a message to Josh about halfway through when it was maybe 13-13 along in that fifth set. And I said, Josh, I hate to say it, but I don't find this that thrilling. It's not that scintillating. And he was like, yeah, no kidding. That's what everyone thinks. Um, so, But that was surprising to me because, you know, in any other sport, you feel like the longer it goes – with the possible exception of uh, World Cup overtime, as we've uh, as you've discussed on this podcast previously, the longer it goes, you feel like it should be getting more and more tense. And instead, with Isner Anderson, I felt like it was getting less and less exciting. So that was my that was my hot take. Six hours and a half is a very long time to be doing anything, let alone uh, out there on a ninety degree day uh, in London playing tennis. I could not agree with you more. I think for me, there's so many different sort of ways to tackle this. The basic takeaway uh, we share, which is it's too long. The game does not get more scintillating, especially if you do not introduce tie breaks, which I think the tie break seems to be at the very least something that we have to impose at all Grand Slams. To be clear, it's already the case in the fifth set at the all the other Grand Slams. And for me, one of the things that I've really, really tried to do both as a player and as the publisher of this magazine, trying to get people off the sort of sidelines and into this game that I love, it's not a great advertisement to say, here, what are you doing for the next six and a half hours? It's going to be kind of exciting in the middle, but the ending is going to be really effing boring. No, It thanks. also ruins the players for the next match. It ruins their bodies. John Isner and Nico Mahu, a French guy, you know, famously played into the 70s a couple of years ago in the longest match ever. I think it was 11 hours. And they both uh, were devastated. Isner lost his next match basically being corporally present on the court. That's not the advertisement for tennis that I want. I want scintillating points. I want engagement and I want people to understand what they're watching, not griping about the fact that it should have been over already, which right. it should have. And not only did it obviously take it out of Anderson, but it pushed uh, Djokovic and Nadal into a second day, which meant that Djokovic didn't get his day of rest. It postponed uh, the women's final uh, by two hours. So the sort of messed everything up. The scheduling should never be the most interesting story. And it threatened to overshadow what was what were two really good semis on the men's side, with the exception, I would say, of that fifth set and a really good women's final. I would argue, Henry, abolish five sets. I'm willing to do it. Not very many people want to take me up on that. There's good there's good arguments pro and con. But in absolutely no sense does playing it out in the fifth make sense. It just ruins their bodies, to Josh's point. 
Well, that a tiebreaker somehow doesn't illustrate the the sort of, you know, a player might get hot for a couple serves and get away with one in a tiebreak and that it somehow doesn't really produce the, the you know, let the best player go forward. I, would, the- I would argue that it's not anything even as um, thought out as that. I think it's just this is the way it's always been done. I mean, there's a fifth set tiebreak at the U.S. Open. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone complain about it and say, oh, they should play this out. It's just like never anything I've ever heard. And I would argue that part of, you know, maybe the majority of the reason that the Isner-Anderson match wasn't compelling to watch at the end was because of John Isner. (laughs) I say that as a tall American. I'm not a a tall American. I'm not a fan of John Isner's politics. Not a huge fan of watching John Isner play tennis, but I root for him as a fellow tall American. But he just is incapable of breaking serve a lot of the time and he's incapable of being broken. And so he, I mean, not to use the word break like a million times in the span of the paragraph, but he's like kind of broken tennis in a particular way. So this part of this is just an Isner problem. Like the Anderson Federer match that Anderson won 13-11 in the fifth in the quarters and Djokovic over Nadal 10-8 in the fifth in the semis, both amazing and I didn't want them to stop. So, Caitlin, I'm curious for your thoughts on how much of this is actually just a John Isner problem. It's a John Isner problem, but I also think it's a grass court problem because grass, you know, notably is the fastest surface. It's the one that takes advantage of a huge booming serve. And by the way, I've never heard the tall American defense. So kudos to you for for introducing <laughs> I'm a, a first quiet, a quiet and tall American, the quiet majority um, of of tennis fans who knew. I think especially on grass, it's the least useful rule for grass courts just because of how dominant the serve is on that surface and because it's so hard to win a return game under any circumstances. I just think it really takes the tension out of it. I have a question. It it seems like the sport recently has been dominated by people in their 30s. And we talked about the comeback. Josh talked about the comeback when you were coming into this. But Serena's 36. Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal, they've all been winning Grand Slam titles for a decade now. Does this say something about the direction of the sport more broadly or is this just kind of we're witnessing the tail end of a really great generation of tennis players i think those things can both be true but i think my most encouraging takeaway is that the game's gotten a lot more sophisticated yes people are training and people are taking advantage of you know science and the way to enhance bodily recovery last year i dabbled myself a little bit in meldonium the substance that got maria sharapova banned for nearly a year um, and it really does aid recovery turns out if you want to be buy some you know just find a pharmacy in riga latvia and you're all set you know so i think yeah the game has gotten better in terms of how these professional athletes treat it professionally that said the the way to win tennis matches now is not so much about talent and it's not so much about um a, a young upstart it's really about strategizing over the course of a year in terms of a schedule in terms of a playing style in terms of improving constantly because the level is so high and to me that elicits better more sophisticated tennis and what i mean by that is just less of a sort of one and done less of a tracy austin not to pick on tracy austin but you see less teen stars and notably the young guys, the teams, the Zverevs haven't had that Grand Slam success. Team obviously made a final uh, last month in Paris at the French Open, but they haven't won a Grand Slam title. Um, not None of this young generation, Dimitrov, Sanga, Monfils before them. And I think a lot of it is, yeah, it's dominant, but also the game of the, the folks who sit atop it in their 30s is more complete. And therefore, it, you know, it's a little bit more exciting to watch as a viewer when you're watching somebody who has all the tools because they have to. 
So Djokovic now has has come back from his injury. We've already seen Federer and Nadal uh, make their comebacks to win Grand Slams again. So Andy Murray, despite the fact that Caitlin doesn't like your backhand or finds it <laughs> finds it boring. It's his, uh, it's his turn next to, uh, to come back from injury. And, uh, I would love that as a devoted Judy Murray fan. Not, nobody in this world <laughs> of tennis is as exciting to me as Judy Murray, the matriarch of the Murray family, both Jamie Murray, number one doubles player, and Andy Murray, obviously a former number one singles player. Uh, she raised two awesome feminist men. And yeah, I find his backhand a little boring, but in terms of who he is and how, what he brings to the game, I think Wimbledon really missed him this year. He pulled out about an hour before his first round match. Yeah. You know, which was a major bummer because obviously the the Brits like to back a homegrown, but also just he brings a lot more sort of added threat characterization. He's self-deprecating. You know, I love Andy Murray for everything except his cross-court backhand rallies against Novak Djokovic. Caitlin Thompson is the co-founder of Racket Magazine. You should check it out. Subscribe. We'll put a link in our show notes. She's also the co-host of the Racket Magazine podcast. You should check that out, too. Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Beth. Thanks, Caitlin. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Boston Red Sox are heading into the Major League All-Star break with a record of 68 and 30, putting them on pace for 112.4 wins. We'll round that down to 112, a total that would place them fourth all-time uh, for wins in the history of Major League Baseball in a single season behind just the 1906 Chicago Cubs and the 2001 Seattle Mariners, both of which had 116, and then the 1998 New York Yankees, who had 114 wins. If you look at winning percentage, though, the Red Sox are at 694, and there are 14 teams all-time with a percentage of 700 or better. So the Red Sox are going to need to turn it on a little bit in the second half to make history. The Baltimore Orioles and the Kansas City Royals, meanwhile, need to turn it off. The Royals at 27 and 68, that's a 284 winning percentage. And the Orioles at 28 and 69, that's a 289 percentage. Uh, they are two of the worst major league teams ever. And they're pretty much exactly as bad as the Red Sox are good. They rank as the 15th and 16th worst teams since 1900. The Royals are on pace to go 46 and 116, while the Orioles are looking at 47 and 115. Joining us now to revel in the badness is Emma Bachelary. She writes about baseball for Sports Illustrated. Welcome, Emma. Hi. Thank you so much for coming on. And I think we need to start with the Orioles who deserve either a special kind of scorn or sympathy because they were actually <laughs> trying to win this season. Right. That's one of the things that I think is so remarkable about this that, you know, right now there's all this discourse in baseball around tanking. And after watching what the Chicago Cubs and the Houston Astros have done the last two seasons of being able to have come back and win a World Series after going scorched earth and burning to the ground in order to build back up, this idea that if you're going to be this bad, it must be intentional. But in the case of the Orioles, it's completely not. 
if you look at what they did over the offseason, they invested in starting pitching because that had been their biggest weakness last season. So they went out and they signed Alex Cobb, they signed Andrew Kashner in an attempt to make, you know, a good faith effort to win. And those free agent signings have just totally backfired on them. Both of those guys have just been dreadful. And then other than that, they've just had some really terrible luck in a lot of other areas with players underperforming and have just managed to be this incredibly bad, even though they, you know, by all accounts, really were trying to go for it, even in a tough division a couple months ago. Chris Davis hitting like 150, Henry. That's not good. Yeah, Chris Davis, I think, is on pace to have one of the worst seasons of all time. And and he's not the only guy in their lineup that's hitting under 200. Pedro Alvarez, Jace Peterson. Yeah, I mean, when you take out Adam Adam Jones and Manny Machado, and uh, it does seem likely that I think the CW is that Machado is going to move it before the deadline, this team could get worse. Yeah, it seems inevitable that uh, Manny Machado is going to be traded probably any day now. That'll obviously be a huge hit. Adam Jones also potential to get traded. So yeah, basically the few bright spots on this team have a good chance of departing and they're only stand to get worse from here, which is kind of scary. Well, that's kind of what I want to hear because I'm rooting for history at this point. You know, they're on pace for 47 and 115, but just knowing that the possibility of them challenging as one of the all-time worst teams is just makes me like really excited for the second half of the baseball season. Um, I'm curious about the Royals. We need a little bit of background on them. Is, is there more intentionality there? Are they going for a Cubs or Astros kind of like tank rebuild situation? Yeah, I think they're in kind of an interesting position because really what we're seeing with them is the aftermath of building a winning squad that, you know, it's only been three years since they won the World Series and they'd had to, you know, really tear down their farm system in order to do that, in order to pick up the pieces that they did in order to make those back-to-back World Series runs in 2014 and 2015. And so now they're at a point where some of their best free agents like Eric Hosmer and Lorenzo Cain left this offseason, like two of the crucial pieces of that World Series run. And the farm system is just terrible because of what they had to put in in order to go for those World Series trips. And so, yeah, now you're seeing the aftermath, which is a team with a terrible farm system that's forced to start back at the beginning again. So it's terrible in a different way than the Orioles with a slight more intentionality to it, but uh, just a different stage of the life cycle, I guess, of contention. Well, I guess at least if you're a Royals fan, you might plausibly believe that your front office has a plan. Uh, they they won the World Series, as you said, three years ago. And that's, you know, the memory of that is probably, you know, still strong in, in Kansas City. Whereas for the Orioles, not only have they not won in ages, but I don't even know why you would have the confidence as an Orioles fan that you were going to get pieces in return for somebody like Machado that would be valuable to you because all their recent signings have been so bad. Yeah, there's not much to take solace in. Like the, the best you can hope for, I think, is getting a really good return on Machado that can hopefully be the start of a cycle of rebuilding. But it, it's not a good spot to have been trying to be kind of in the middle of things and to be this far down at the bottom. The Orioles did make the playoffs three times between 2012 and 2016. And so they have had some recent success. But Henry, like as you said, with the Royals, not only does winning a World Series just have this halo effect and buy you some goodwill, I think it also gives fans reasons to give 
the front office the benefit of the doubt that they know what they're doing, that that was a plan that succeeded. And so maybe this will be a plan that succeeds as well. But if we can zoom out a little bit, I'm just kind of fascinated by what's taken over baseball in the last half decade. And Emma mentioned it at the very top of her first answer with the Cubs and the Astros doing so well with these teardowns and rebuilds. And it just invites all sorts of bigger picture questions. I mean, Scott Boris, the agent who you can always count on to give a provocative quote, (laughs) called it a non-competitive cancer taking over the game and that it damages the brand of baseball. There's been talk that the stratification in the game this year with so many teams that are both so good and so bad is really hurting attendance. Um, Emma, and kind of what you've been reading and hearing and thinking about, is there concern about the fact that the game seems to have been moving in in this direction? Yeah, I think it's definitely a valid concern that, you know, I think we've heard for years now, this sort of hand-wringing over, like, does baseball appeal to millennials? Like, how do we make sure that it survives in this new age? And I think this is a very real part of the problem there that, like, I mean, if you look at especially the American League right now, you have four teams out of five potential playoff teams that have like a 95% chance or greater of making the playoffs halfway through the season. You know, the Red Sox and Yankees, obviously, and then Cleveland and Houston. Like you really only have that second wild card spot up for grabs. And even that is not a super competitive or packed wild card race. Like halfway through the season, it's that stratified where the top is so high and the bottom is so low and there's really not a middle. And, you know, that's not a very fun or exciting thing to want to tune into for a lot of people who are casual fans, I imagine. Well, I wonder if the games are getting worse. I mean, I think the the idea that there's not going to be a competitive playoff race in the American League, at least, that's obviously bad uh, on the face of it. That said, I do think that it's kind of fun to have teams like the Yankees and the Red Sox who are pushing a 700 winning percentage. Uh, and I, okay, I'm a Yankees fan, so I'm biased mm-hmm. in this regard, but the energy that I'm sensing at Yankee Stadium and around New York about this team is something that I haven't seen in 20 years. So, you know, there may not be that many competitive games, but I wonder if people are drawn to these superstar teams. I mean, watching Boston, like watching the season Mookie Betts is putting together, for example. Well, I guess what I'm saying is maybe nobody wants to watch the Orioles except for Josh, who's excited about the run they're going to make at uh, (laughs) finishing under 300. But it's really exciting to tune into these teams that are winning, which is the flip side of that coin. Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably the sort of thing that different styles of this attract different types of fans. Um, But yeah, it is really cool to think that we have a chance to chase history on both sides here in terms of epic failure and, you know, just really incredible super teams. So yeah, I don't think it's all bad, but I think as it gets increasingly more stratified, it merits a little concern. Um, but no, I mean, it's been so much fun to watch the Red Sox and Yankees this year, which is the best that this rivalry has been in quite a little bit, probably really since you know 2003, 2004, when they had that uh, epic ALCS uh, matchup before the Red Sox won the World Series. So I would say it's a bigger problem in baseball, the stratification than in basketball, where, you know, the tanking conversation really started because there's obviously a huge amount of local interest in in the NBA and the arena attendance is important for the health of the league. But it's just more of a national sport. And if you were a Sixers fan during those dark years, you could still find a lot in the NBA 
to follow and and be interested in. But baseball is just so much a local game, and it's just not good for the health of the league to have so many markets just be so down and out. And for it to be not something that those markets are actually concerned about and for them to be actually leaning into being bad seems like something that the league would obviously want to be concerned about, in my view. And I think there's just so much job security now for general managers. Like Nobody's calling for Dayton Moore, the Royals general manager, to be fired because they're losing all these games because it's like oh he's he's got a plan like losing in baseball now is not considered bad that's got to be something that uh, the league would want to address in my view right and i think it the perception on this might be something that shifts in the next few years that like right now i think the success of the cubs and astros is fresh in everyone's mind but that wasn't just the idea of lose really hard and then things will fall into place. It required like really smart, good drafting and player development and, you know, then being willing to buy in and pay up as the contention window really started to open up. And it's not going to be possible really for all of these teams that are following that model to do that exactly all at the same time and in the same way. And so I think as the, the next few years go on and we get closer to what should be contention windows for some of these teams, maybe the public perception on that will start to shift a little and there will be more of an acceptance of the realization that, you know, losing is not an automatic precursor to winning down the road. Like there's more to that strategy that has to come into place. The players have filed a, a grievance against, I think, the Marlins, Tampa Bay, Pittsburgh, and Oakland for not using all of their revenue sharing uh, money to to improve. I mean, is there any way that the league or the players, someone could take action that would change the incentive structure here and make it so there was, you know, less incentive to do these prolonged rebuilds or, or, or make it easier to, to compete? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. And I'm really interested to see where that uh, grievance goes. Because if I remember correctly, that was from a very specific revenue sharing part, which was when MLB sold off MLB Advanced Media, and each team got $50 million from it, which is, you know, should have been a very specific amount that was able to track how was this invested? How was this spent? As that gets further along the process, and there's hopefully eventually some resolution there. Whichever direction that takes, I think, could be a good sign to see, is there a chance for the league to to take further action? What will the ruling be on this when it comes down? And what does that mean for uh, the potential for a more serious intervention? I love the the idea that, like, you know, we had Moneyball. uh, I think the subtitle is The Art of Winning an Unfair Game. And the whole concept is around arbitrage and picking up advantages that other people haven't realized. I'm wondering if where we're at now is like the arbitrage around losing um, at, at some point is going to fall away. And so it was only, uh, you could only lose in order to win when other teams weren't trying to lose. And so now there are right. going to be too many teams trying to lose. And so like, you know, one of the Orioles or Royals is going to be the one of the worst teams ever and not get the number one pick. And th- I think there's not even like a, like a Bryce Harper or anybody that they're even losing for. And so I don't know if it's going to be like this year or next year where teams are going to look around and be like, what are we doing? Well, you made the comparison to basketball earlier, and this is a clear example of how it's so different that it's not at all like basketball in which you can you know, go hard for a top pick that can revel- 
revolutionize your team in a year, two years, two or three picks can do a whole lot. Like with baseball, you're looking at such a broader uh, time frame that you're thinking, you know, years of development, so many prospects don't hit their ceilings. That's just part of the nature of it. it. It's a lot riskier to bank so much on the draft and on player development. And you need a really dedicated, really strong strategy there in order to pull it off. So, yeah, I don't know. Well, yeah, to, to, to address your point around uh, maybe the uh, advantages of, of losing, the, the Royals happen to be playing in probably in a very competitive American league. They're playing in the one division where it could have been open. And the, the, the Indians are only 11 games over 500, uh, or actually nine. They're nine games over 500. And, um, you know, obviously the Royals are on pace to have a historically terrible season. There hasn't been a season, an MLB season since 1939 when two teams finished under 300, um, which could happen with the Royals and the Orioles. But, uh, but yeah, it just seems like they, they, you know, they could have been in a position to, to, to compete there in, in that particular division. So it's not like, you know, even though the Yankees, Red Sox and, and Houston are all running away with it, there, there maybe was an opening. All right. The Orioles, uh, are going to trade. Manny Machado probably any day now, and then that's when I'll start following them. I'm, I can't wait. Uh, <laughs> Emma Bachelary writes about baseball for Sports Illustrated. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Emma. Yeah, thank you for having me. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it is time for After Balls. And Henry, I'm curious if you saw this tweet from last week that carried the announcement that Murray State Athletic Director Alan Ward had resigned. Was that on your radar? No, it was not. <laughs> you might have seen it because of the news of who was replacing Murray State Athletic Director Alan Ward. And that was longtime women's golf coach Velvet Milkman. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, of course. Velvet Milkman. Uh, Stefan would surely like me to note that Velvet Milkman, the one and surely the only Velvet Milkman, made the final four of the 2009 Name of the Year contest, but did not actually win. That's how deep the field was, Henry, in 2009. That's astonishing. Velvet Milkman finished in fourth behind Nutritious Love, which I think that was just a bad, bad decision by the voters. Number two that year was Iris Macadangdang. And your winner was LSU's own Barkevius Mingo. Oh, yeah. Well, I do remember Barkevius Mingo, actually. Um, but today, Velvet Milkman has achieved afterball immortality, which I think is just a great accomplishment in a long and storied career as a women's golf coach and now an athletic director at Murray State. So congratulations. And Henry, now is the time when I ask you, what is your Velvet Milkman? My Velvet Milkman, Josh, is uh, is actually about horse racing, but not about the race itself, but about the tracks. Because as you know, I'm always looking for buildings that tell stories. Yeah. Um, and, and sports is conducive to this because the stadiums stick around for years. And, and I think this is 
one of the reasons why it makes me sad to see stadiums torn down before their time. Um, some of the oldest stadiums out there, it turns out, are, are racetracks. So lately in my travels, I've been trying to visit the racetrack, and now I have a 100% track record in turning up interesting stories at the racetracks I've visited. And so I started with um, uh, Rio de Janeiro, uh, which has this absolutely gorgeous 1926 racetrack. It's this huge open space in a city that's so crowded that, you know, the houses are, are built on, on slopes that do not seem uh, structurally intact. Um, and the jockey club there at this Rio racetrack turns out to have been an important gathering point for the right wing in the lead up to the 1964 coup d'etat, which sort of gives it a kind of, you know, historical significance in that city. And of course, as you might expect, our president shows up in the history of the Rio Hippodrome as well, because he went to Rio to hold a Trump Cup in 1989, uh, promising big things to the Brazilian sports world on which he did not uh, afterwards deliver. But that was just the start. So after Rio, I went to Shanghai uh, and Shanghai has uh, had at one point the largest racetrack in, I think, the Eastern Hemisphere, uh, supposedly the largest grandstand in the world, which was built by the British. And after uh, the Communist Party rose to power in China, they decommissioned the racetrack and turned it into a people's park, which I thought was a kind of a, a suitable uh, left wing response to what had been a kind of uh, British aristocrats sport there in Shanghai. That's great. Have you been to the fairgrounds in New Orleans? I haven't. Uh, I've only been there to my to my great shame and consternation for the Jazz Fest, which is that's the location that, that they have it every year. I haven't actually been to a horse race. The only horse race that I've ever been to is the Preakness, which is just like the definition of shit show. And so I feel, I feel like I need to expand my like uh, history and communion with the racetracks of the United States, much less in foreign countries, as you've done. I think it speaks to the fact that racetracks are they're massive. Uh, they tend to have large reserves of open space that can be repurposed in the case of Shanghai or in the case of the story I'm about to tell. And the fact that they're all very old and they belong to a sport whose relative popularity is declining, at least in the United States. And so they have this kind of grand, almost ruined quality to them where they, they always feel quite uh, overbuilt and, and empty in a way that I find alluring. But I think the most interesting story that I found came from Arcadia, California, which is in the San Gabriel Valley, just east of Los Angeles, which is where the Santa Anita racetrack is. Um, and this is this 1934 Art Deco grandstand with the San Gabriel Mountains in the background of the track. And during World War II, this was the site of the uh, largest internment processing center for Japanese Americans. Because I think the the government saw this as a, a large facility that could be reused for this shameful episode in American history. And they were there for from March to October in, in 1942. There were 19,000 Japanese Americans uh, from Southern and, and Northern California living at Santa Anita. Some of them in, in the sort of racetrack facilities there, including the, the stalls. And I was just astonished when I learned this, I, you know, to to think that this what is essentially a site of you know, sort of fun days at the races and had been a, you know, a scene for LA society had uh, also played a role in this, in this episode in American history. And uh, when you go there, there's a very small plaque uh, that commemorates the, the 
the event, uh, which is the work of um, George Yoshinaga, who was a, a columnist for the Los Angeles Japanese newspaper, Rafu Shimpo. And, and he really led this drive to say, we have to commemorate this. Um, but you could go, if you went today, you, you could easily take in a day at the races and, and not know that this racetrack had doubled as a uh, Japanese internment camp during World War II. Wow, that is really interesting. Um, it sort of feels like there should be some kind of museum there. You know, you know, like, as you said, if there's a chance that you could go there and not know the history of it, it seems like if people do go there, they should be confronted by it, even if they're going to enjoy a day at the races. Absolutely, Josh. I agree. I think it's, like I said, there there is a plaque, but you could easily pass through and not notice it. And I think that, you know, when you have a, a facility like this that has this kind of history, I think it's actually incumbent on the people who operate the track to make sure that people know. Uh, and I think it does a lot to to situate this place in American history and to remind you that even sports facilities sometimes have these untold stories um, that may have nothing to do with sports at all. And that's obviously the case there at Santa Anita. Yep, indeed. So Josh, what's your velvet milkman? I was looking around the Facebook page for the Society for American Baseball Research, which is what one does when one is looking for a velvet milkman. That's a little bit of inside the Velvet Milkman studio, uh, when I found this enticing opening line on one of their recent Facebook posts, Eddie Waitkiss was not the first major leaguer to be shot by a woman in a hotel in Chicago. That's a good line. Eddie Waitkiss was shot by an obsessed fan in 1949. That story was the inspiration for Bernard Malamud's The Natural. But before Eddie Waitkiss, there was Billy Jurgis. Jurgis was a three-time All-Star 17 seasons with the Cubs and the New York Giants, led the league in fielding percentage four separate times in the 1930s. He was also the manager of the Red Sox in 1959. That was the year they became the last major league team to break the color line by promoting Pumpsy Green to the majors. So um, he had a role in history there or was at least Mm -hmm. a witness to history. But let's go back to 1932 when Jurgis played for the Cubs. Um, A guy named Jack Bales wrote a really great article that was published in the Baseball Research Journal in fall of 2016 that tells the story of what happened um, in 1932. And I'll link to that on our show page. And this material is all drawn from that article. But he met this woman named Violet Popovich. They met at a party in 1931. She was a stage actress, and she wanted to be famous. She went to New York. She was trying to be an actress. According to this article, she succeeded in finding work only as a model for confession magazines. And she also, at this point, was pursuing the Cubs shortstop. According to Jerkis's father, Bill talked to her but didn't seem at all anxious about her. He never was a so-called ladies' man. Since he was a little boy, his only love has been, been baseball. Good testimony from dad there, huh? <laughs> yeah, totally character witness. He was staying at the Hotel Carlos on July 6th. That was a, a hotel close to Wrigley Field. A lot of the players went there. He was in room 509. Popovich uh, went up to his room. According to newspaper accounts, she reproached him for neglecting her, opened her purse, drew out a 25 caliber pistol. As the two struggled for the gun, three shots were fired. 
bullet uh, went in Jurgis's right side, deflected off a rib, came out his right shoulder. Second bullet grazed the finger on his left hand. A third hit Popovich's left hand and went up her arm about six inches. Um, as you can imagine, probably knowing a little bit about the Chicago newspaper scene from that era, like from the front page, the newspapers were not <laughs> inclined to leave uh, Mrs. Popovich and Mr. Jurgis alone. This was quite a story in Chicago in 1932. Newspaper reporters charged into the hospital, were taking photos of them. The Chicago Evening American described how the raven-tressed beauty tossed in her bed as she tore the curtain of secrecy from her troubled romance with Bill Jurgis. She told the newspaper, I was unhappily married at 18, one of those puppy love affairs with a schoolboy. Uh, I never lived with him and we were divorced six months later. There were dancing lessons at the Ned Wayburn studio. She was in the chorus of the Earl Carroll Vanities. This is just like an amazing period story, Henry. Um, So my question, Josh, is why haven't you taken this great story and turned it into, you know, your own uh, award-winning play? Well, I think, you know, I don't want to spoil my next project, but... It's possible that I'm going to turn this into an award-winning Smash Broadway musical entitled Chicago, but you know, I'm still I'm still thinking <laughs> yeah, about no it. No one's used that name either, so that's a great opportunity for you. It is. She capitalized on her fame after um, all this happened. She uh, headlined as the girl who shot for love. And this is like actually a real thing that happened, not the musical Chicago. <laughs> um, but this article, which gets into so much more about her life before any of this happened, her life afterwards, what happened to her. And so I'd encourage everyone to read it. But one of my favorite bits from the article is that the writer tracked down her nephew and talked about maybe why wasn't she able to sustain the success of you know her celebrity uh, after this happened. And he said, the nephew, she liked to sing. That is, she tried to sing. Ouch. Violet Popovich her uh, musical stylings not super appreciated by her nephew. But it's a great story. Every baseball player, like every racetrack, has a story about getting shot. It's just, it's just the it's just the truth. That is our show for today. Our producer this week was Andrew Parsons, and he was filling in for Patrick Fort. Our intern is Meredith Ellison. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. Thank you, Henry Grabar, for sitting in for Stefan Fatsis this week. My pleasure. I am Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., 
on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.